the Air Force's role in the first half of the Second World War is basically about launching these incredibly costly, complicated, massive missions against first against Germany, then, then against Japan, where they send hundreds and hundreds of bombers and men to bomb targets deep inside Germany. And they don't hit them. <laughs> They're missing everything. And it's like, so that, you know, that's the first crisis of the Second World War for these Air Force guys, which is, what do we do now that this idea that we'd hatched back in Alabama doesn't work? Malcolm Gladwell, Outliers Blink, Talking to Strangers, and his newest book, The Bomber Mafia, which is an incredible look at the Air Force and the close of World War II. We'll talk with them next. It's the Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter-player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Buy. It's Wonder Water. So I was wondering what made Buy so great. And it's actually pretty simple. Buy has antioxidants, electrolytes, and no artificial sweeteners. And the flavors are delicious. For me, it has to be Buy Zambia Bing Cherry. So for flavorful hydration, choose Buy. It's Wonder Water. Learn more about Buy and discover all of the exotic, bold flavors at drinkbuy.com. This is a real thrill. Uh, somebody who I've been reading for years, I, I know a lot of our listeners as well, the great Malcolm Gladwell. Um, his most recent book, The Bomber Mafia, uh, anybody that likes war history, and, and he kind of shares with us his passion for it. So let's let's kind of start. There's a bunch of different ways I could start this. I thought about it last night. But let's start with kind of a better understanding of what the Air Force was, where it was in its standing, who was actually in control of it, and how it kind of started to deviate from the normal process of where it, its kind of hierarchy was in the middle um, in the military. Yeah. So, yeah, so... This is a book about this moment in the history of the Air Force. The Air Force is, um, at the beginning of the Second World War, through the Second World War, is part of the Army. And it's because the airplane is so new. It's like a, it's this brand new technology that no one particularly understands. And the Army is run by these guys who think it's just a toy. And there's a group of young men who call themselves the Bomber Mafia who are in love with this technology. and they're. They're, in, they're at some army base in Virginia, and they have to do, among other things, cavalry training. They have to, like, you know, train on horses and, like, muck out the stables. And they're literally like, they're like, what the fuck? We are, you know, we're obsessed with the technology that will literally the most important technological revolution of the 20th century, or one of them. And you're making me, you know, train on a horse every morning. And so they decide to leave and go. Uh, to take take out to, to to Montgomery, Alabama, to Maxwell Air Force Base, because they want to get as far away as possible from the Army brass in um, in and around Washington, and it's the middle of no. I mean, it, it's still kind of the middle. I don't want to diss Montgomery, but I've been there many times. It's still not 
you know, it's not Paris. But in 1935, it's like such a backwater because they want to be as far away as possible. And they start this kind of um, internal revolution. And they famously say, if the guys back, the army brass back in Washington knew what we were doing down here in Alabama, they would fire us all. Because these guys think that the airplane is all that matters and that they can, they're going to render every other, every single part of modern warfare obsolete. And so it's this, it's this crazy, there's like 10 of these guys and it's this crazy like insurgency within the army um, on the eve of the second world war. And so my book is a story about what happens to these guys when they bring their insurgency um, into real combat. And, um, and it's more generally though, it's about this idea of dreamers about what is the place of, of people who get obsessed with some new and bold and crazy idea, and what happens when that idea confronts the establishment? Um, and it's you know it was one of the one of the kind of oldest and grandest narratives of all, right? Is the newcomer confronts the um, the old guard, um, and it has so much kind of. I felt in writing this book that I, you know, it feels so contemporary too, like, because we see versions of this conflict now in the present day, you know, everywhere we look. Um, and so, um, I don't know, it just wasn't, it's, it was like a, it was a really, really, really cool story to tell. What I like about this, and I, it's a theme at times where, you know, you do challenge things and then you try to get us to think about something a little bit differently, but this is a little bit more, you know, pragmatic in the sense is like, hey, this is the way we do things. This is how we send out bombing missions. And this is this is what we do. This is a formation. This is the altitude. This is the mm-hmm. the the you know trying to calculate risk. And and you make a I mean it's not even a compelling point. You basically blast through and the people at the time from the bomber mafia were like, wait a minute, why are we doing it this way? Can you run through some of some of the calculations and realizing like these bomber missions that we would read about and how successful they were, they were incredibly inefficient. Um, yes. And it was, it was based on assumptions and the assumptions never being challenged. And I think that's kind of one of the core things from this book is that this group, this bomber mafia were like, well, wait a minute. Like if we keep like, what are the numbers? And they'd have these bombing missions in World War II into Germany where actually when you look back at the numbers, they were astonishingly terrible. Like, and yeah. people would, but then they would write up reports as if they were, overwhelmingly successful and the math yeah. is so off. Yeah, so the, the basic problem is a physics problem. So you have the, the Barra Mafia are obsessed with bombers, which is, a, bombers are brand new in, this, in the 30s. This idea that you can build a plane that's really big, um, powerful, that can fly really, really high and really, really fast. And their idea was bombers were so powerful and large and fast that no f- fighter, no, no fighter plane could ever catch them, shoot them down. They were going to be impervious to any kind of, no anti-aircraft missile could ever bring them down. They could not be stopped. And so they said, oh, if the bomber can't be stopped, then it can win the war all by itself. But the only reason, the only way for that dream to work is if the bomb that you drop from 25,000 feet can hit its target. And the bomber mafia assume they can figure that problem out. And they have their... They, they developed this incredibly complex and expensive analog computer called the Norden bombsite, which they believe will allow them to 
They could be going 250 miles an hour at 25,000 feet, and they can hit, they can drop one bomb, and it can, they're aiming on a bridge, and they'll be able to hit the bridge. That's their assumption. But they run into the problem, which is that actually, it's really, really hard. Solving the physics problem of how to drop a bomb from 25,000 feet when you're going 250 miles an hour, and there's a wind blowing, and there's temperature change, and there's clouds, you know, obscuring the target and all turns out to be an almost impossible problem to solve from, um, from uh, in, in the 1940s, using 1940s technology. To use a sports analogy, you know, the really simple version of this, you would think that a world-class athlete standing at the foul line, shooting a foul shot without anyone's hands in their face, with, you know, you should be able to do that with 95% accuracy, right? But you can't. In fact, there are some people who can't even do it with 50% accuracy. People who are making millions of dollars a year. It's a physics problem. It's, you have to have a reproducible motion. You have to you, you know, put a very large ball in a very small. So that the physics problem of dropping a bomb from 25,000 feet is a thousand times more complicated than that. And human beings tend to think these accuracy problems are a lot easier than they are. And so the Bomber Mafia, the first problem they have in the Second World War is they can't do what they dreamt of doing back in Alabama. They can't hit anything. And so the first, the, the Air Force's role in the first half of the Second World War is basically about launching these incredibly costly, complicated, massive missions against first against Germany, then, then against Japan, where they send hundreds and hundreds of bombers and men to bomb targets deep inside Germany. And they don't hit them. <laughs> They're missing everything. And it's like, so that, you know, that's the first crisis of the Second World War for these Air Force guys, which is, what do we do now that this idea that we'd hatched back in Alabama doesn't work? What do you do when you can't hit anything, right? You have to change strategy. And so that's the, the second half of the book is devoted to a what what is the, tr- the strategy they choose when option one doesn't work? And that second strategy is deeply morally problematic. Right. And I want to get to that because that kind of is where you, you intro us into Curtis LeMay and, and Haywood Hansel. Um, why don't you give me a little backstory of both of them and then how that ultimately mm-hmm. leads to the decision in Guam, which starts basically the second half of, of World War II. Yeah. So the book is really a story about two men um, who are... They're, they're, they hate each other. That's the first thing that should be said because they represent different sides in this, in this debate about how should we conduct bombing campaigns in the Second World War. The first guy is Haywood Hansel, who's the... There are these group of guys down in Maxwell and he's one of the ringleaders of this group. And Hansel, they're all young, these guys. They're all in their 20s and 30s. They are obsessed with the promise of, 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 of military aviation. They are, you know, Hansel is one of those guys who does one of the first forms of those acrobatic flyers. He's the guy who does tricks in the air and he's a brilliant pilot. He is a dreamer. He's a poet. He, once when he's, when he, when he, when he's coming back from bombing missions over Europe and is, you know, you've got a plane full of guys who have just seen their life pass before their eyes and they're 19 years old and they're scared out of their minds. He would sing them Broadway show tunes to calm them down. I mean, he's this kind of, he's handsome. 
he's from a long Southern family of military. You know, his great grandfather is like a Confederate general. He has like the scarf around his neck. He's just this kind of like, there's a, my favorite story about Haywood Hansel is he's, these guys work all the time. They are never home. He is a baby at home. He finally goes to see his wife and his baby. Like he hasn't been home for months. And in the middle of dinner, he hears sound. He turns to his wife and says, what's that sound? She goes, that's your son. He's crying. <laughs> he doesn't even know what his baby sounds like. He's like, these guys are like, they're so, this is so not possible in 2021 to live the kind of life these guys lead. They, and by the way, this is a point when he's, his wife is in Northern Virginia and he's been detailed to Washington, D.C. for a few months. He doesn't even go and see his family and he's like two miles away. Like that's, these guys are just like, it's just another, it is a, it is our grandparents' generation. It is so not ours. So he's one side of the argument and he thinks he's a dreamer. He's, he's Elon Musk. He's like the kind of like um, romantic version of Elon Musk. He just thinks, um, that he's in love with what technology can promise. Curtis DeMay is the opposite. Curtis DeMay is this kind of working class guy from Columbus, Ohio, who puts himself through Ohio State, whose family is like got an alcoholic dad who's never there. He's got like eight siblings and he's the eldest. He's the provider. He never says, he's this guy, he, he always has a cigar in his mouth. He's famously the most taciturn um, in fact, there's a famous story about years later when he's, when he's head of the Air Force, he gets briefed before the Bay of Pigs, you know, this, the famous botched invasion of Cuba that, that Kennedy launches in 1962, 61. And LeMay's in the room for the briefing, and it goes on for like hours. He doesn't say a word. At the end, he gets up, takes his cigar out of his mouth and just says, won't work, and leaves. That's the kind of guy he is. He's like this he looks like he's got like a, he looks like a linebacker. He's got like a square head and a big barrel chest. And he is brutal and he is bloodthirsty and he is, uh, he's a genius. He's maybe the greatest combat commander, one of the greatest combat commanders of the Second World War. And people are terrified of him. And he becomes convinced that everything the Bonner Mafia is saying and doing is a pile of horseshit. He just has no time for it. And he, he, they involve him in one of their earliest, most disastrous campaigns, this bombing attack on Schweinfurt. And it just, he becomes convinced that if these guys continue to run the air war, we're going to lose to the Nazis and to the Japanese. And so there's a kind of blood feud that develops between Hansel and Curtis LeMay. And that's the, my book is a kind of the, 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 the emotional center of the book is the conflict between these two incredibly disparate guys. It is weird um, reading s- stories like this in, in today's day, because you like um, you read about LeMay and, and you're like, okay, well, this guy, was he, I mean, he's, one of his nicknames is the demon, but you go, okay, is this, I mean, I'm not getting into like, hey, is this problematic? Countries are trying to win a war here, right? They're trying mm-hmm. to prevent Nazi Germany from expanding. So th- this isn't um, something with, that, you know, in today's day and age, you never know how people talk about things. But he had one mission, and that was to end this thing as quickly as possible. And I, I think there's a part of it where you could describe him as this this bad person because he was so bad. But at the same time, like, 
his rationalization for things actually led to him wanting things to be more as civil, which I know sounds crazy, but that's kind of one of the points of the book that I think really brings it together. Because, I mean, he's somebody, too, that would be like, look, this is what we're going to do. We're going to fly to lower altitude and I'm going to be in the front. And if you guys abort, then you're going to get court martial. Like it was to the point where mm-hmm. the, these bombers were going in these raids and guys are just peeling off left and right. And then when he says, no, we're, we're done with that. And by the way, I'll be in the front and I'm going to lead every single mission. So for anyone that has any military bra- background whatsoever, the admiration that you have to have for him as vicious as the outcome had to be for for the war to end the way it did. Um there's there's a lot to be said about a, just a level of respect that you would have for somebody that would say, okay, and I'll be in the front plane, which is, yeah. I think, why there's so much respect for him. Yeah, so this is, this is actually a fascinating, you, this is a fascinating little... What was happening in the early days of the Second World War is that guys would go on bombing missions, and you would be, you'd go into your, um, your, you know, your, your final approach to the target and you want to get relatively low to maximize your chances of hitting the target. And what would happen is that you've got some 20 year old kid from wherever, Kansas, whatever. He's, he's probably been on, you know, he's he, a year ago, he was in high school and he's piloting one of these planes or, and they would get scared. Understandably, there would be enemy fighters coming at them and and anti-aircraft fire from the ground. And what would happen is just at the moment when they should have been lining up the target, they would get scared and they would either, they would do evasive maneuvers. They'd basically just start moving the plane all around, trying to dodge the fire. And finally, sometimes they would just peel away and not even, and just drop the bombs wherever they wanted to drop them. And so that the whole thing would be a waste. So an incredible amount of, of, uh, of, 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 um, uh, of time and energy was spent was wasted in these in these bombing runs because guys just weren't dropping their bombs on a target, and Lemay in classic Lemay fashion just says, "This has to end. That uh, we're going to do we're going to go steady, fly steady and straight towards the target, regardless of how much anti aircraft fire is and regardless of how much enemy fighter activity there is, and uh, I am going to lead the first one of these you know what sounds like a suicide mission." It's not a suicide mission. I'll show you why, and I'll I'll be in the front of this of the of the of the um, uh, of the attack. And if anyone, like you say, if any, he said, and if anyone doesn't follow my lead and fly steady and straight towards the target, I will court martial your ass. Right? It's like he just and people they real they begin to realize that it doesn't sound it's not as suicidal in practice as it sounded in um, in kind of in theory. And he convinces people that you can actually fly steady and straight towards the target and you won't. Your chances of getting shot down by the enemy are not greater. Um, But he had, this is a guy with, I mean, an insane amount of almost reckless courage. And anyone who flew with him, who served under him, just had an incredible amount of respect for him. I mean, to the point where I talked to some people who, you know, these 90-year-old retired Air Force guys who knew LeMay back in the day. And if, you know, if hypothetically LeMay had walked in the room, they would have dropped everything and saluted him and followed him wherever he, he said, we're going to Afghanistan and we're going to buy, they would go. Like, it's that kind of, the, the you know, that rare kind of, um, uh, it almost seems like, I don't know whether anyone does this anymore. Like that kind of 
loyalty people would have to a leader where you would be, you'd be willing to put aside all considerations of your own safety for whatever cause the leader says is the right one. You know, Martin Luther King was that kind of person. You know, there are coaches, old school. I'm sure John Wooden was that kind of person. You know, you could find these people, but they're the number of people who can, were capable of inspiring um, people to follow them in that way is really small. I mean, it's, it's vanishingly small. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it'd been a while. So I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. I was like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I didn't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. I don't know how much you want to get into with the challenges of, of attacking Japan because like I'm reading those chapters going, you've got these guys going up and they're coming back and reporting tailwind speeds that people back on base think they're lying about. You have the Himalayan path where the amount of gas it would take to deliver gas was like four times as much just getting over these mountain ranges. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of these problems were with Haywood Hansel in charge ultimately leads to the government saying, all right, like it's over. We're putting in LeMay. Um, yeah. give us, give yeah. us some of the background and all this stuff, because it's just, sometimes you can forget that even though it's only 60 something years ago, you know, that it, it can be not that long ago and forever ago, all at the same time, because reading the reactions to these failed missions over Japan, you'd be like, wait a minute. So wh- how could you guys understand it? It's like, no, people just didn't, they didn't understand the jet stream then. Yeah. So the, 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 the war against Japan is a geographic poses this massive geographical problem, which is Japan is really, really, really far away, um, and we don't have planes that can fly, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles. So 
the question is, if you, the only way we can get Japan to surrender, it's an island nation, is we have to, we want to bomb them. How do you bomb them if you can't reach them? So the first way we solve this problem is in 1944, we, uh, there's an incredibly brutal set of battles in the mid-Pacific, South Pacific battles, for the Mariana Islands, Guam, Saipan, and Tinian. Some of the most brutal fighting of the war. The Marines take those three islands. And the reason, these are little volcanic specks in the middle of the Pacific. The only reason we spend, we, you know, uh, spend um, weeks and weeks and sacrifice thousands of lives to seize these islands is that if we control the Marianas, we can reach Japan. Um, it's within the range of a B-29 bomber, which is a huge, huge, huge deal. It's just within the range. I mean, when I say just, I mean like if you, if you miscalculate even by a little, you will fall into the ocean short when you're coming home because you run out of fuel. Um, so we seized the Marianas and we set up these, we built, they built three of the biggest air, um, airports in the world on these three little volcanic um, islands. And we start to launch attacks on Japan. And um, the, it sounds like it's going to be pretty straightforward. And that's when Haywood Hansel comes in with his bomber mafia ideas and says, we can do precision bombing against Japan from the, from the Mariana Islands. And it doesn't work out that way. And the second half of my book is all about the unexpected problems that um, you face when you're trying to um, when you're trying to attack Japan with pretty primitive technology, and you run into something among other things that you, things you've never heard of or thought of before. One of them is the jet stream. That if you're flying at twenty five thousand feet over Japan, there are winds that are so powerful that they will mess with everything you're doing. Um, and, you know, um, there's all, all, all kinds of other issues that they run into. And what happens ultimately is the failure of the bomber mafia in bringing the, the fight against Japan in 1944 leads to Haywood Hansel being replaced with Curtis LeMay. That these, 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 these two antagonists, these guys who hate each other, one guy gets fired and the new guy, they, 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 they kick out the dreamer and they bring in basically Woody Hayes, which is a perfect way of putting it. Yeah. <laughs> Curtis, I mean, even both of them are both Ohio state guys. I mean, it's like perfect. They kind of look the same. Um, but, uh, and that's the, the bloodiest and the most kind of brutal chapter of the second world war is what Curtis LeMay does to Japan in the summer of 1945. It's like, what happens when you bring in, the guy who has no illusions whatsoever, no grand attachment to technologies, no commitment to fighting a kind of clean and perfect war. What happens when you bring in the, 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 the complete pragmatist whose only goal is to win the war as quickly and as efficiently and as savagely as possible? And that's, <clears throat> that is a legacy we've been living with for the last 75 years. Yeah, I was trying to think of like the equivalent of, of Hansel then if he's Woody Hayes. And I was thinking like Mark Tressman, the Bears brought him in from Montreal to be like, all right, we're going to do this. And then people were like, this, I love this. This is outside, outside the box until they didn't love it anymore. Um, I had no idea the first napalm bomb was was set off on Harvard's campus. I yes, as that. a Boston guy. As a Boston guy or a New England guy, um, napalm, the weirdest 
the weirdest part of reporting this book was this whole thing. I thought that napalm was a Vietnam War invention. Um, it's not. It's a, it was invented at Harvard during the Second World War explicitly to be used against Japan um, because Japanese cities were made out of wood and the houses were really close together and there were very few parks and they were tinderboxes. And so the army was like, wait a second, we don't, you don't want to use a conventional explosive against cities that are made of wood. Let's use an incendiary. You want to burn them down. You don't want to blow them up. And so they bring in all the fire guys. There's a whole cadre of people who are experts in fire. And they say, build us the greatest incendiary bomb ever. Something that can burn anything down. And so a bunch of this brilliant Harvard chemist um, comes up with this idea of basically making a jellied form of gasoline that you put it, you put inside of a canister, you drop the canister, and you have these globs of jellied gasoline that will explode and attach themselves to whatever surface they land on. And it will burn, the thing he comes up with burns hotter and faster than any incendiary weapon that had ever been created before, before it. And that's napalm. Napalm is, is an insanely um, uh, effective and brutal weapon. It burns everything it touches. And they use it. Hansel gets kicked out and, uh, because he can't hit anything in his, when trying to bomb Japan. They bring in LeMay, and LeMay says, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to napalm the entire country of Japan. And that's what he does in the summer of 1945. He napalms 66 Japanese cities. He essentially burns the country to the ground. Um, and that's the climax of the book. And it is the most kind of uh, 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 overlooked bit of American, uh, recent American history um, between that and, well, Yes, it is. I think it is one of the most overlooked bits of American history. This incredibly savage um, uh, uh, reign of fire that Curtis DeMay uh, visits on Japan in the summer of 45, where he probably kills close to a million Japanese civilians in one summer. A million civilians in the space of two and a half months. And this is before the two atomic bombs which yeah, I was like, wait, are you serious? As you go through the numbers. Now, as we finish the conversation, the thing that no one expects when you're reading the book and aren't going to expect, why did Japan honor him almost 20 years later? It's one of the great, I mean, it's one of the great mysteries. Uh, LeMay is given in the 1960s, uh, 1950s or 60s, uh, the highest honor Japan can bestow upon a non-Japanese person. Um, and it's, it's, it's said to be because of his help in rebuilding the Japanese Air Force after the war, which he does do. He does come to, goes back to Japan after reducing Japan to ashes in the summer of 45 and killing more Japanese than any person in human history. Um, he is invited back to help them rebuild their Air Force, and he does it and does such a good job that they give him a prize. Um, the Japanese were determined to put their uh, 
to put the Jap- their experience and their memories of the Second World War behind them. I mean, I think it's the best way I can de- describe it. They, I mean, even to this day, you know, the only memorial in Japan to the firebombing of Tokyo in the summer of 45 is a little private museum that some random guy built, not even a government museum. I mean, it's, you, you are hard pressed to find any kind of um, public discussion or mention of the firebombing um, of, of Japan um, in Japan today, in contemporary Japan today. It's just a different cultural attitude towards, um, towards historical tragedy. I mean, this country is a very different approach. You know, we, we, very, we very aggressively memorialize things. Um, I did a podcast episode last year on the 9-11 memorial. I mean, we spent billions of dollars memorializing 9-11. Um, that's not the way that other cultures do it. I have a bigger question for you. I, I really enjoyed talking to strangers, um, the default to truth and thinking about, I started thinking about the process of that. And I mean, you explain it pretty, pretty frankly in that if we, if we decided to go another way, we wouldn't get a lot done once we get out the door. Mm-hmm. Um, but in all the ways you've looked at, you know, our society and then societies throughout the world, are you more impressed with things that we've done or more disappointed? When you say we, you mean people, people. Yeah. More impressed. I mean, I'm ultimately an optimist and I'm aware and I am, you know, um, uh, very much aware of how we have it better than in any other uh, generation in history and any other. So it's like, it's very hard for me not to be, and I'm in awe of some of the institutions that we've, created. I mean, I, one of the things, just to go back briefly to the book, I didn't know a lot about the Air Force and I came away from writing my book just blown away by the Air Force. Man, what an amazing institution that is. And the people I, I met more, the people I met in the Air Force were, you know, some of the most impressive group of people I've ever encountered in my life who have devoted their lives to the defense of the United States and, you know, who make, I don't know what they make. They don't make what they could make in the private sector. That's for sure. Um, and I don't know. I just think the idea, and it's funny, I've told the story before, but in the middle of last summer, the middle of, you know, there was a moment last summer where things were as crazy as they will maybe ever be, you know, middle of Trump craziness, election craziness, COVID craziness, it really seemed like the world was going to hell in a handbasket. And the Air Force had a changeover from uh, the old chief of staff to the new guy, General Brown, from uh, General uh, uh, Goldfein to General Brown. And I watched it on, it was a live stream of the changeover ceremony. And it was so dignified, so thoughtful, so emotionally moving, a series of people stood up and gave these speeches isn't the right word. They just, they spoke in a moving way about this country, about the Air Force, about what the guy leaving the post was all about and who the guy coming in was all about and what their families were like. And the, you know, the, it was also fascinating to 
the new chief of staff of the Air Force is an African-American. The, the, the secretary of the Air Force at that point was a woman. The outgoing secretary of the Air Force was a woman. It was just like a different America. And in the middle of all of this crazy dysfunction of last summer, I just got a glimpse of like this, this institution that was more than thriving. It was like, it was, it represented all of America. It was a true meritocracy. It was in the middle of the craziness. It was having a peaceful transition of power. The, the head of the Joint Chiefs, this guy, General Milley, I don't know if you've ever gave this speech that was like, if any politician running for higher office in this country gave a speech half as good as his speech, they would win in the landslide. It's like this guy, like 90% of Americans don't know the name of the person who runs the Joint Chiefs of Staff. That guy is a funny, incredibly intelligent, unbelievably charismatic. He's a dude who I would follow into combat. It's like, you just realize the rest of the world may be falling apart, but there are, there are parts of this country that, that are really, really strong and powerful. And, you know, you, you, they will be around for a long time. Um, and it just made me, I wept at the end of watching this. I was just like, you know, and I, I was, I came out, I, I was so much more optimistic after it was over than I was going in. And I, I've carried that optimism with me ever since. Like, we're not, it's so easy to get convinced by the dysfunction of a few small areas of this country into thinking the dysfunction's everywhere. It's not, you know, it's just not. It's like most, most things in this country work really well. I was lucky enough to be invited to uh, the Air Force campus in Colorado and you nailed it. The description, it's inspiring, makes you feel like in a way inadequate, but not, not in a way where you're driving away depressed all from the place. Of, all right. of those kids at <laughs> the Air Force Academy are so much smarter than you are <laughs> and me. And so, <laughs> yeah, you, you, you look around and, you know, there's, I don't know if it sounds cheesy or outdated, but it's, I, it's how I felt like this, this call to service that you go, all right, you know, um, but there's, uh, there's, I, I don't know. I just, I, I love the book, man. So I, I'm going to, I don't want to, I don't want to share too much more of it, even though we already have, but I think people are going to really enjoy because there's so many little details. There's more LeMay stuff in there. Um, at the end, especially when you just start to kind of paint a picture of who he is as a man, you know, when you go to his house, um, mm -hmm. and hear these stories. But the last thing I want to ask you about, cause I'm a avid listener as well. The revisionist history, he gets season six out now. Um, when you, this is amazing because this was like one of those things that we would go to the U.S. News and World Report college rankings, uh -huh. and I mean, talk about having a guest dead to rights about the reputation score. And so, if you could kind of share, like, uh -huh. it was you knew you had them, you were you were nice about it in in the most clear way you could be. But this was a big deal. Like people love to rank stuff. We love to read rankings. When I'm applying to colleges, I'm looking at them all in the bookstore being like, okay, you know, could I get this one? Yeah. You know, where, where's my school rank now? And then you're like, wait a minute, what happened? But this whole thing was, was basically like at the extremes, it made sense, but the voting process was totally out of control, outdated, cr criminal. And yeah. yet, and yet <laughs> the denial in the interview 
was hilarious because the guy seemed like a nice enough guy, but you were just like, this doesn't make any sense, sir. And he was like, well, and he was trying to find ways yeah. to, to shave off some of the facts. It just wasn't very convincing. So whatever direction you want to go, because I thought that was really funny. And I had, you know, no one had really done a deep dive on it before. So I yeah. enjoyed it. I, one of my favorite things in revisionist history over the years has been, you know, I love going after American higher ed, which I think is just it's so full of nonsense. And I had years ago, I interviewed the president of Stanford and I was asking him about the, his endowment because Stanford's got what, 25 billion in the bank. <clears throat> and I asked him a very simple question, which is, would he ever consider giving any of that money to a school that didn't have a big endowment? <laughs> and he's just like, he just, his head exploded. It was so hilarious. Anyway, I had a similar moment with this one. The U.S. News rankings, the most important, people don't realize this, the most important variable in their algorithm that determines how they rank you is what they call a reputation score. And the reputation score is generated by asking all of the college presidents in the country to rank every other school in the country on a scale of one to five. So right away, we're in high comedy territory because like, so how would you know, right? My big point, which I raised with the guy who runs the US News rankings, I was like, you know, if I gave them, they, I gave them the examples of a Jesuit school, Gonzaga, a more, uh, an Orthodox Jewish school, uh, Yeshiva, and a, and a uh, Mormon school, Brigham Young. <clears throat> so we're asking the president of Brigham Young to rank yeshiva on a scale of one to five. Has the president of Brigham Young ever been to yeshiva? Do they know anything about Orthodox, Jewish, whatever? Similarly, we're asking the head of yeshiva to rank Gonzaga. What, why would he give a Jesuit school a good score? He's, a, he's like opposed to the Jesuits, right? I mean, it's the ludicrousness. It goes on and on and on. And not in that. So I could just are, see the guy being like, oh, throw, put a three next to him. <laughs> that's right. It's like, it's like, and you talk, I started, I started calling up college presidents. And I would say, how do you, you know, there's 300 colleges on this list and you're asked to rank them. Do you know anything about these schools? And they're like, no, I don't know. Anybody. And, like, you know, and then one guy I talked to, in order to get people to know his school better, he sends, he makes his own hot sauce. And he would send a hot sauce to all the other college presidents to get them to vote for his school. Like, it's this crazy thing. But anyway, I got the guy who runs the U.S. News rankings. And I just sort of walking him through the absurdity of this reputation score system. And he was, it was a situation where he knows it's bullshit. But his job depends on him pretending that it's not bullshit. And it was, it was kind of painful and hilarious at the same time. But there are, there, you know, and it was a reminder, there are a class of people in this country who are in that very unenviable position where they are required to defend the defenseless. You know, you're, you know in your heart, it's like being, imagine being- It's like the, working for the NCAA, basically. It's, it's like working for the NCAA. It is exactly like that. Or being the press officer to Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's like, at a certain point, you're like, oh man, life's too short. Do I really have to like go on about QAnon today? Or do I have to pretend an amateurism for one more? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, yeah the, the NCAA is the only other American, major American institution that is as, as aggressively stupid as the US News rankings. Um, I don't know. I often I have these fantasies about what would be the simplest fix for the NC to NC to A, and I I think it's moving them. Does it really matter where you move them? Which they're all because they're in Kansas City, 
The so were you is, arguing like a change of scenery? So like a trade at the baseball deadline where you just get a reliever in a new city and we just expect it, it's, it's going to exactly be better? It's exactly what it is. It's exactly what it, it's like. It's like Lonzo Ball needs a new needs, needs a new change of scenery. But they, they all live in like they're in like Overland Park or something in Kansas City. I know a little bit about Kansas City. The thing about Kansas City is I know where they all live. They all live in the country club district. Kansas City is a beautiful place to live. You can live. You have a really high standard of living. You send your kids to first-class public schools. You're in a bubble. You're in a middle America bubble, right? And you can, your notion of what's going on in like all of these colleges that you're ruling over all around the country is so minimal. They got to force them out. Let's move them to like the west side of Philadelphia. Let's move them to, let's move them to Rochester. Let's make them suffer through an upstate New York winter. Let's make, let's make them. Let's move them to Northern California where they can't afford to live anywhere and there's a wildfire every two years. Just do something to shake them up <laughs> and alert them to the complexities of the world. But that little part of people, that they're just not in real America. Right, the okay, but Kansas City. Is it, isn't it Indy, though? Is it Indianapolis or there, is there another location? I thought they're in Kansas City. They're in Overland okay. Park. Okay. Well, because yeah. I, I know that there's some... Um, there's some yeah, some of it's located in Indy. Yeah. So you the, you the, want them, you want to de-bristolize them, is what you're saying. You I want to take oh, ES, yeah. yes. ESPN would be another. I remember going to the ESPN campus for the first time. When did you like, go? What were you promoting? I went. Can't remember what I was doing, but it was right after they had just paid millions of dollars for Rick Riley, and I was. <laughs> That's an amazing date and time. <laughs> it was fantastic, and I remember why you would. I had it a was meeting. a while ago. Yeah. I had a meeting with all of this is years ago with all of the brass and I brought I was like they were talking about they were their the question was for me was how do we make ESP and we want to keep it cutting edge we we started out as this kind of you know badass outsiders we're worried we're becoming part of the establishment we're losing contact with younger sports fans how do we be badass and I my I just put it out well one way to be badass is not to give millions of dollars to Rick Riley. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so they brought you in as as this respected voice, uh, like this yes. observer, and they wanted to pick your brain. Oh man, this must. <laughs> they be... wanted to pick my brain. Did and they I have to like, pay you for this? By the way, they had to have paid you a little bit. No, no, I was. Just, I came for fun. I just thought it'd be fun. Um, I got invited. I was there just to visit with. Um, I can guess who invited you. I, Walsh. I could already. Yeah, absolutely. Walsh. I, came in, my number. I yeah, love right. Walsh. Yeah. I love Walsh. And I've become friendly with him. And I went to see, I went to see them. But I was like, that Rick Riley, to this day, the Rick Riley hire, like a guy who was so like, I mean, in his day was a great jerk. I loved him back in the day. But by the end, he just was so over sports. He just didn't want to be a sports writer anymore, right? You could just tell. He was like the movie critic. There's a certain point when movie, in the movie critic's life when they just don't like the movies anymore. You can just tell. They're just not... They'd hate them all. It's just, I think Rick Riley wanted to do something else, but he was pigeonholed as a, and like. You know what? I'm well, going to share a story with you too, because this was something as somebody who would talk, you know, I was talking more hours a week than almost anyone there. There was a handful of us, right? And you'd have to yeah. be a radio guy to even qualify for most hours talking in the air, but you get to a certain point and then every now and then a suit would bring you in. And sometimes you think you were catching up or expanding your own career and, you know, building this relationship. I spent, a good 45 minutes being told why Rick Riley was the right hire when I didn't even bring it up. We just had time on this on the books. And by the way, good for Rick Riley. He got paid a ton 
And I, I don't care about pretty much like anybody getting paid a lot. Like it should yeah. just raise all tides here. But I could tell that it was internally going over so poorly that he was almost like, you know, and again, there were more influential voices than me at ESPN. I'm not delusional, but it was almost like, let me, you know, we got oh, Rosillo's Rosillo's on the schedule this week. Let me sell him on this Rick Riley hire. And I was pitched that it basically, hey, for $15 million, we destroyed Sports Illustrated. And I was kind of like, I think the internet had a little bit to do with it too, though, no? <laughs> it was just like, you dick, which what is why hilarious. I probably didn't do as well as I could have. But What was hilarious was how much Rick Riley drove Simmons crazy. It was one of those things like, you know, there's certain things that just set him off. Like, Riley, you just, you even, you even just use the initials RR around Simmons at that point in his life and he would just just like lose his shit because absolutely like because he was the future and Raleigh was the past and they were more interested in the past than the future like that was wrong was wrong that's that's also like a great reminder of the decision makers you know like I remember a friend telling me once and it's one of my favorite lessons is like the reason why you can cork wine and bring it home is that the people that vote on that stuff want to do it you know the selectmen in your town want to be able to cork a bottle of wine they haven't finished and bring it home and that's why that that yeah. law exists and yeah. most people aren't going to give you a to-go cup when you leave a bar um, because they those people aren't voting on that kind of stuff and when you have the decision makers at that time at espn going rick riley fucking live rick riley like read back page all the time like done and done um i didn't know <laughs> i didn't know bill that well back then so i, I was not privy to those conversations yeah. Yeah, well, d- next time next time you're on a pod with bill just just dr- just randomly <laughs> drop just say the words rick riley and see what happens it, it's hilarious <laughs> it is hilarious it's like it's like like if bill was being I- interrogated by some hostile power and like they wanted to sort of torture him they would just play remember riley used to have that just play tape of rick riley and bill would be like all right all right i'll tell you everything just stop with rick riley <laughs> <laughs> i'm going to uh, i'm going to try to pull that off next time Except, well, I'll try to subtly slide in there. Hey, congrats on the book. Um, you know, I know how much work you put into this. I just want you to know how much those of us enjoy it and appreciate the work. Oh, thank you. So this was this was a lot of fun. I'm, I'm glad we finally got to do this. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. This episode is brought to you by Arby's. You know what I hate? Hate is after lunch, there's all this time before dinner. I hate it. So I'm always like, do I do this? like you should gain season throw in a little something extra an appetizer that just starts hours before dinner it just gets so frustrating when there aren't great options that's where arby's new two for five dollar chicken wraps come in available in your choice of ranch barbecue and honey mustard they're perfect for that afternoon snack attack or as an add-on to your meal food buddies Arby's two for $5 chicken wraps are here for a limited time at participating locations. Visit an Arby's near you or order ahead on the Arby's app. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari, 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. 
I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. All right, it's everybody's favorite segment here. Another edition of Life Advice. The email is lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. Okay. Um, 6-3-2-15. A fit but not jack 205 before COVID. Working or getting back. Not going to pretend I'm a 10. But not going to deny I'm probably an 8, 8.5 on a good day. Not that that's how I think. No, it's just the first thing you said in the fucking email. Um, just hard to convey attractiveness succinctly via email without a pic, which be, uh, yeah, not sending pics via mail. Uh, honestly, guys are sending pics nonstop now to this address, which is kind of funny. Um, we promise we will not use those. Although Saruti was thinking about just starting up a bunch of burner dating sites with guys that email the show. But I was like, let's not do that. I'm just kidding. That's not what I'm going to do. All right. Anyway, 43, good education, professional degree and job. Made good money from my late 20s until recently when I started questioning the crazy hours I work at a job I don't love. I'm not one of those follow your bliss types who thinks that everyone should be doing their dream job. Someone has to take out the trash and God bless them for it. But it matters to me that I do something to feel proud of beyond the money it pays. A couple of months ago, I quit my job, budgeted for a year with a mix of savings, supplemental from uh, part-time consulting and take a time to get back into some things I enjoy that I used to be good at, like writing while catching up on reading putting together a plan for a consulting business. Is this guy, is this me emailing? Um, anyway, uh, putting together a consulting business. So he, the guy wants to open up a consulting business, the mix of what I used to do, plus some discount pro bono charitable work for causes. Um, companies I think deserve a leg up. If all goes well, I'll make 75% of what I made before, but working only 80% of the time and being 50% more satisfied. All right. So the guy's just banging out some ratios for us. At the same time, I'm reevaluating my personal life. Between college and my late 30s, I had three long-term relationships. Two were about three years and one was five years, including one engagement that I broke off and quite a few six-weekers. As my friends and I call them, someone hot enough to keep your attention for six weeks, but not a long-term prospect. As I approached 40, I decided I was tired of the six-weekers and wanted a long-term relationship, preferably leading to marriage. In retrospect, I wish I decided this 10 years earlier. Um... I think what he's saying here, he's like, okay, I, in retrospect, I wish I had decided this 10 years earlier. Again, uh, as you said, our guy here is 43. Um, shout out to the 30-year-olds who are enjoying playing the field and think there are no trade-offs. Hmm. All right, a little stern there. Maybe he didn't say or, hey, think about, I, I don't know. I, there's, there's a wording here I'm not figuring out. Um, because as of now, I'm caught in an awkward age position where if I want to have multiple children, I really need to meet a woman who is in her early 30s at the latest. Okay. Here's the math in my head. Even with a perfect sequence of events, if I meet someone today, I'd want to date for at least a year before I'd be ready to get engaged. I've learned from experience anything less than that. You don't really know someone. Then say a year till the wedding could be less, but let's say a year and then another year to have a child. If it all goes smoothly, that's three years, give or take, at which point she and I will be each three years older. Yes, we follow. Add another two years for a second child, and more and more uh, for and more for more children. Uh, starting to feel like the Ben Stiller um, guy, the insurance risk guy. Um, add more years for more children. Not sure how many I like, but I am one of three, and that feels right. But we'll see. I know that the miracles of modern science, women can have children into their early 40s, and obviously so can men, so there are increasing risks there too, but I also know far too many couples my age who put off marriage and children and have spent the years and tens of thousands of dollars trying, and the stress is damaged and broken the relationships, even if they're successful, they're usually only one child and the health risks are not insignificant. My problem is I find dating a 30-year-old in my stage, uh, or my age, strange. 
obviously some are super smart worldly and is or more mature than me, but I still find it strange and I'm self-conscious, especially when it comes to meeting and hanging out with their friends. And Steve Buscemi, hello, fellow kids meme starts flashing in my head. So my question, do I just suck it up and accept that? Or given the choices I made in my thirties, I just have to pretend to care about Taylor Swift and learn to speak emoji. Or do I resign myself? Um, to the chance that I might not have the family I thought I would have and go out with women closer to my age, late thirties, who I like and usually find more all around attractive. Uh, weird how that happens to you when you hit a certain age, or do I get a dog and really lean into the emotionally distant, but fun to hang out with and travel guy who knows the world and likes to share it on his terms or deep down nurtures a pain. He'll never talk about, which is who I'm gradually becoming unless I make one of these other choices. Appreciate any advice or a guy probably thought about some of these things. All right, here's the deal. I've definitely thought about all this stuff. Um, you are, Definitely. I'm a thinker. You are hammering the thought process on this one to a point where you're kind of in your own head. All right. I'm going to share one. Like if I, this happened this is before COVID moved to Manhattan beach, whatever guy invites me to this deal. I'm immediately the oldest guy there. I sized up that I was the oldest guy there and guess who didn't have a very good time. It had no chance, no prospects me because I made a decision just like the story about me talking about how my dad would be like, Hey, you lost the game on the ride over before we even got to the court. You will lose this game of pursuit of marriage and happiness and kids and family. You will lose this once you decide, like you think about everything, man, there's like a lot of math and all this stuff, right? So it's, Hey, I, Here's my ratio of what I think I can do and how much I can make and what event, you know, what number I'll be proud of. Okay, so now let's talk about my long-term relationships. Three years, three years, and five years. Now six weekers. Okay, so I wish I had decided I'd done this 10 years earlier. And look, I'll tell you, a lot of people that do have kids, almost every one of them says, the only thing I wish I hadn't done was wait, which sucks. I don't even like saying that out loud. It stings a little, but it's true. So I'm not talking to Suri directly, but I've heard it far more often. You know what I don't hear a ton of people saying? is, man, I'm so psyched I had kids so much later. Um, it's usually the other way around. So I feel for you on that one. But you have decided, like, as soon as you finish, you're clearly very smart and you think things out. But as soon as you start the sentence, you immediately counter that sentence. So it's like, hey, I could do this or this, but now here's all the problem. Again, I think it's a long cane poly, right? Ben Stiller's the risk management guy. I mean, this is what this reads like. So honestly, man, I think you're capable of pulling any of this stuff off but, and I think you know that you're smart enough to know that you are, you are making it harder on yourself than just kind of going with it. Because you know what's funny about that time I went out to this deal in Manhattan Beach when I first shown up to town and I, I turned to the guy that invited me and I was like, man, I'm so much fucking older than everybody here. And he was like, so? He's like, welcome to California. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of like, this is pretty young, dude. He's like, who gives a shit? He's like, you don't have to say how old you are. And I was like, yeah, but I, I wouldn't want to be like a lie about my age guy. And the thing was, is he, he never thinks about any of this stuff. This guy that invited me to think, he's like, yeah, I'm older too. Whatever. Like, it's on. Let's go. Let's have a great time. And I'm thinking like, yeah, but why? So when you, when you already have all these kind of mental hangups, like you make it that much harder on yourself. Like, why can't you meet somebody who's 36 and have kids. I mean, yeah, you can bring up risks health-wise. I don't know what the numbers are, but is it is it so overwhelming that you're going out every night being like, okay, I can only factor in 30-year-olds because then by kid number three, she's 36 and we're still in a safe window? I mean, this is a lot of overthinking. And honestly, this this email, the way you present it, the overthinking is fucking you up as much as anything else is. It just is. 
And the only reason I know that is because I can do this kind of stuff too. Not to this level where I have all these alternative paths mapped out and then I start to shoot down why every one of these paths also can't work. So I'd say the first thing you need to do is fucking relax. Just relax. All right. And I know that's easy to say because when you want a family and it sounds like you really want a family and look like at least you're a guy in this scenario. Imagine, you know, and how much more women have to deal with the timeline of stuff and how much that sucks for them compared to how much it sucks for us. It's way worse for them. So, um, I would, I'm not going to give you any, I'm not going to say, yeah, give me option B. I'm going to tell you, you've got to relax because actually I think it's going to be harder to get this right with all of this going on in your head. All right. Cause you're going to meet that 30 year old. And you're going to go like, Oh my God, She's got that one friend that's so annoying and she talks about Taylor Swift. Oh, okay. So now what am I going to do? Oh, I met this 37 year old. Okay. But when I map it up, I, your kid's three, six years, she's four, you know, like, I mean, imagine thinking about that stuff when you're ever meeting somebody who you could potentially spend some time with. And it seems like women do like you, right? It seems like women like you. It seems like you have a lot of options. So that's great. You gave yourself an eight and a half. So be happy about the options. Be happy that you're not a guy emailing going, no one likes me ever. And I'm only going to have a dog, you know, and that sucks. Think about that guy, how much it sucks for that guy who has none of the options that you say that you have. So feel better about that. Have a more open-minded attitude about this whole process and relax. Kyle. Yeah. I mean, I've kind of stepped away from the thing where I'm like, uh, I'm too young to be giving life advice to anybody. But I'm going to just say, I'm going to say partly that and partly like, can you do like a straight up real dating site where there's like women that want families? Like, I don't know. I mean, maybe it seems a little eerie, but like, like a straight up like respected, like, you know, what is it? E-Harmony or like with the old white guy with the white hair, that's E-Harmony. He just seems like he brings people together. And I'm just wondering, like, I think that's the guy. I haven't seen those commercials in a long time, but he's got glasses in the suit. Because the E-Harmony commercial host seems trustworthy and old you feel like he's got his priorities he has our like, priorities right it seems like hitch he seems like hitch to me you know what i mean the will smith movie it seems like he knows what's right for all of us so i just think that maybe you could give that a whirl and like just look at women who are you know in your in your age range because you're such a fucking numbers guy and just see if they're like interested in families now and i think you know Maybe that would work. Have you tried that? If you're going to spend all your time, because if you're thinking just, you have to meet the person and then you have to spend a year before you know if you want to get married and you're already mapped out into your second kid, you kind of don't have a ton of time. So, you know, and the older you get, the more weird it's going to seem to you that they're younger. So maybe try like, you know, putting your specifications in eHarmony. I don't know. <laughs> Analytics. There you go. That one surprised me, Kyle. I did not expect the eHarmony um, that you just you're hypnotized by the old guy that hosts the eHarmony quick. He just seems like a great guy. I mean, he's 43. He's not 53. Like, I just, I don't know. I, I've already said whatever I was going to say. So go ahead, Srudy. No, I would I would be kind of worried because if this guy, if he's like, okay, I want to date young 30-year-olds, right? People, girls in their early 30s just because I want to have a family. Like, are you actually going to be finding someone that you want to be with? Or are you just checking off something on your list so that you can have a family? And then that's going to come back and potentially bite you in the ass later in life if you don't actually like the person you're with. And then the other problem is if you end up not dating someone or dating someone who's older, right? Who's more close to your age and you can't have kids. 
um, at least on your own, you know, there's always the adoption option. Are you going to hold that against like, there's always like a problem that you're that you're pointing out with someone. Why don't you just let your life play out the way it's supposed to play out, you know, and if that includes getting a dog at some point in your life, and you're just kind of solo, then that's cool, too. But I think with you putting all these expectations on what you have to do and what you should do, that might not even lead you to happiness. That's the irony in this whole situation. You know what I mean? So I would say, you know, if you really want, because he seems open to all three of those options, even though he does want a family. But why can't you just see what's out there for you? If you meet a cool girl that's 32, that's great. If you meet a girl that's 40, that's great. And just see what happens in the next couple of years. Don't have a, don't have such a stringent plan on it. Yeah, I mean, this sounds so simple, but like, how about the next person you really like? You just see where it goes. Yeah. And I know, you know he's worried about like, like, oh, well, oh. then, you know, the marriage kids thing. And he's worried about the timetable. But just, I don't know, be happy. Try to be happy. That's first and foremost. What's the most important thing? I think BS Pod had a promo code for eHarmony, by the way, now that I'm remembering. Okay. Think BS, oh, promo okay. code BS. I don't know if it's still active. <laughs> okay, then good. Then I think we nailed it. <laughs> Is that true? I, I, that seems like a bad promo code. No, I think it letters? was. I think they made me sign up a long time ago. They made me sign up. Somebody tried to get me to do that at ESPN. You remember that, Saruti? Yeah. Yeah. On any harmony specifically, though, I remember it was some sort of app or whatever. I don't know. I don't remember. I don't remember yeah. which one it was. They were like, "Hey, would you do this in a live read and then share your experience?" I was like, "No, that's yeah. not going to happen." That might have been one of the few live reads I was going to turn down because you should get paid for those. P90X was giving us five grand a month. Yeah, Gottlieb, I remember that. He was that was unbelievable. On. Do you remember like, the Chrysler Pacifica minivan one that they pitched to you and Canel? And it was just like so not on brand for the show. It was like, you know, lug your family around in this thing. And it's like you doing reads for a, for a minivan. Yeah, because they were trying to get us a van. Like there was some deal where they were going to get us a van for a year and we were going to have it. And that was going to be part of like this big rollout. And it was it was unbelievable how little thought they had put into it. No. Because I was like the, the only guy without a family. Yeah. And I was going to be the minivan guy. Uh, the P90X thing, just so people understand, that is not normal. It was an absurd amount of money. And they were paying every host. That's why every one of us were pitching P90X because it was an off-the-charts amount of money. I ended up saving for a down payment on my condo from P90X. And the only reason I got it is Van Pelt turned it down. And Van Pelt was like, what are you getting? I was like, yeah, it's like five grand a month. This is like everybody's on it right now. He's like, what are you doing? I go, ah, you know, I go, I work out enough that I can incorporate a little bit in there. You know, Gottlieb went crazy. Gottlieb like went full blown, lost a ton of weight, super ripped up, started telling me how he's putting like just vinegar on his salads, like no olive oil, just vinegar. And he, t- he took it to another level. And then he sent me a picture of him with his shirt off. And he's like, I know this is kind of weird, but I just nice. want you to see this. And I was like, you know what? It is weird, but. You are you are ripped up right now. So he kind of looks to you. like that Tony Horton guy, you know, right? That's his name, right? Tony Horton was the P90X guy. He's in all his commercials. Am I making was that it? Up? I thought I Tony so. Horton was the guy that was on the elliptical that had like a little bit of a ponytail. <laughs> that could be it too. Hold on. No. Yeah. Let's get a uh, let's get research on this. <laughs> no, right. Tony Horton. Yeah. P90X. Oh, he is three now. It looks good. Yeah. He that does. Like Gottlieb. All right. So wait, who was the. I feel like the other yeah. guy was a Tony, though. Give me long hair, blonde, ponytail, fitness guy. Was he a Tony as well? That Look, was elliptical, I'm a, right? Yeah, I'm the former P- P90X guy, so I should have known. Um, the funny thing is I sent, ponytail guy. I sent my before pictures. I had to take my shirt off, and my girlfriend at the time took pictures of me with my shirt off, and 
I was pumped because the P90X guy was like, Jesus. He's like, Tony you know, Little. Tony Little. See? There it's it is. about the Tonys. He's 63. They're the same age. He and Tony Horton are the same age. That's wild. Maybe yeah. they are the same guy. Yeah. Just the one with a wig. All right. Um, okay. Here we go. Um, what's up? 6 1, 195, shredded. <laughs> Guys are really, really ticking it up a notch here. Um, He's doing P90X. Yeah. My wife and I recently booked a trip to Denver where we hung out with a friend who's in real estate finance. Our conversation uh, led to another with a friend. We started seriously considering buying a house. We currently live in Michigan, won't be in Denver for another one and a half to two years while I finish up grad school. So we were banking on being able to rent out the house until we're living in Denver full time. <laughs> so you're looking at buying a house in Denver in 2021. Have fun with that. Uh, one of my friends, his appraisal was double what it was in 2018. Three years ago. Three years ago. It's double. Okay, so we got pre-approved for our home loan because my wife has a good paying and steady job, but all the money for our cash down payment is going to come from some savings and other assets that I've been fortunate enough to accrue over the years. As we progress through the house hunting process, I've become less enthusiastic about using up these assets. Coming to grad school, I was planning to use these assets to minimize the amount of debt I take on or perhaps entirely avoid taking on debt if a few things fall into place. Look, some people have a really hard time with taking on debt. For whatever reason, mortgage debt doesn't seem to count as real debt. I know that's kind of how you know, I've looked at some transactions in the past. It's up to you. Some people just see this number that's outstanding and they lose their fucking mind over it. And then other people just say, hey, this is how business is done. And that number is not even a real number anyway. It's not like I'm ever going to be writing a check for all that because I'm going to be buying another house at some point anyway. So, you know, why would I why would I even get bogged down with that? All right. So people um, people look at debt differently. Uh, and it, that's that's very, very true as, as I've you know, experienced kind of how people look at it. All right. So, um, coming into grad school, I was planning to use these assets to minimize the amount of debt I take on, perhaps entirely avoiding taking on debt. A few things fall into place. Um, a financial advisor could do better than I could on telling you like, okay, well, if you're talking about college loans, the interest on the long-term payout is probably so low that you, you don't want to just go, Hey, I'm now debt-free. I, you know, you'd have to look at I'd have to know exactly what the math is on paying it out long-term or paying down the college debt immediately, but I would rather have cash on hand than just pay down college loans. I just would. And you're still going to get approved for stuff with college loans out there. You know, when you have college loans or you have a mortgage, that debt is looked at differently than some asshole maxing out his credit card all the time and doing the minimum payment with a $20,000 balance. Ouch. So those are, those are different ways that banks are going to look at you. Um, I know that buying a home can be like trading one asset for another, but I'm pretty debt averse person. And there you go. Consider myself more responsible with money than my wife. She's admitted to and agreed with me on. I'm starting to lose my appetite for the risk. My wife is pretty determined to buy a house because prices, especially in Denver, continue to rise. She argues that we'll end up spending more two years from now if we wait, which I think is a fair point. Given my circumstances, what would you do? Am I foolish to wanting to cash out stock savings to avoid on taking on debt that we very likely can afford? Um, that we can very likely afford to pay off later. Is it better by, uh, to minimize my school loan debt in this instance, given we'd be taking out a sizable loan for the house? The only other debt we have as a couple is a loan for my wife's car that should be paid off in the next three years. All right, the fact that you ended it with like the only other debt that we have is a car loan that should be paid off. In the, you are clearly very responsible. Um, you probably, 
and this isn't even a negative, but like you, you almost sound like prudent about it. I'm, I'm not saying you're, you're cheapering like that, but I could just tell. All right. Cause I started answering, honestly, I should have just read the whole email all the way through, but some of the stuff I could tell. So back to the college loan thing, we've already covered that the car loan thing, whatever you don't really have. Um, I think banks look at it as like bad debt, understandable debt. You know, this is this, you don't seem to have any of that bad debt. Now the real thing, I'm not even worried about the debt thing as much as I'm worried about the Denver pricing thing. I mean, and by the way, that's what every fucking realtor says to you. All right. Like, Hey, if you don't buy now, I mean, realtors not in the habit of telling people to not buy houses. Think about it. Right. Like imagine if you ran into a car sales, it's like, you know what? I'd wait until the fall. It's never going to happen. Never going to happen. Realtors are always going to tell you stuff like this because that's the job. And I know people think it's like an anti-realtor. It's just, it's just the truth. It's just the truth. So I personally, um, I, you look at a market like Denver and you go, now I'm going to buy. And I've been at the top of markets and bought, and I've been where I thought I was at the top and I wasn't at the top. You know, I've sold in Connecticut where it felt like it took forever just to be like even again. So to sit there and have anyone, certainly me as like a podcast host to tell you, oh, now's the time to buy or don't buy now. I'm just telling you, Denver has been on fire in a way that no one would ever have predicted. Um, I think COVID has, as we've talked about at other times, COVID has motivated people to move more for a lifestyle, which I don't know how that's even remotely a permanent possibility now for how everybody's just going to, like Denver is a sustainable city. Denver's always going to be fine. But some of these other cities that have blown up, I'm like, people are just going to live there now the rest of their lives. That doesn't seem to make a ton of sense. Uh, for me to say that there's some market real estate correction coming, it's coming. I don't know when it's coming. I don't, I don't know how these prices are sustain, uh, sustainable, but then you have to start playing the game of like trying to middle it. And I'm not smart enough to figure that out. And you probably aren't either, you know? So the, the scary thing is, is you're buying in a market that has just been absolutely on fire. And, you know, it's one thing to take on debt. That's the lo- the mortgage, you know, the loan on the mortgage versus the down payment. But it's a whole nother deal when all of a sudden your house is worth like 30% less than when you bought it. And it's not just debt, but now you're like, wait, like I look at this payoff number I have and now look at the new appraisal. And that turns into a whole nother deal that just sucks. Like every one of my friends, the first housing crisis going back to pre-2008, it was right around you know, most of my friends were early thirties. They were buying their first homes. And I had a ton of friends that were just wiped out all the equity wiped out because everybody was approved for, for housing. And so the housing thing was out of control. Um, did it mean it derailed their lives and they're destitute afterwards? No, like they're going to be things that turn into good investments. They're going to be things that, that fuck you up a little bit. Um, and it didn't mean that anybody, I didn't meet any, none of my friends turned into like, Hey, it was never the same for them after that. But they, a lot of them went through it because they were buying at that time. So I probably scared you here a little bit, but the only way you can play it is you can buy now and hope it keeps going up, which maybe even does for a couple of years. But then what? Are you going to know when to sell? Like that's hard. Or you could rent and you could rent knowing I'm in a rent, hoping to strike when things dip. But if you have a wife that's like really, down with trying to buy something now 
that's a whole nother challenge uh, because I think people like security. Like they like the idea. Like I don't, I don't love the idea of rent and paying somebody else's mortgage, but I like it a hell of a lot better than, <laughs> than buying a house that might be worth 30% less because it seems like everybody's moving to Denver right now. So, um, she's probably not going to go for that. And my rent thing for two years, ride it out, see if there's a correction on the price. What if the correction happens in four years, you know, and then you, you, you spent rent for two years while the prices went up again, and you're going to think this advice sucks. So I don't have a clear path for you. I just know that, um, some of these markets scare the shit out of me and Denver will be one of them. I hope you feel better because there's no way you do after that answer. Uh, and I'm sorry for that, but there you go. I would say, so my wife's a realtor, uh, she mostly does commercial, but does do some residential too. And you know, must be nice. Uh, no, she's, she's, she's killing it. So shouts out to Maddie. But I, I think unless you have to buy in this market, I don't think, she, you know, she would recommend that you buy a house in this market. Like some people are just like, Hey, I want to move. And this is where I want to live. That's great. And that's cool. And they don't really care about the prices and they're going to just live their lives. But Ryan, you probably would know about more about this than I would too, though. But you know, if, if it's a long-term real estate investment, like no one in the last 100 years has really taken a loss buying property, correct? Like it just, it always goes up at some point. So if, if, if you're trying to like in three years sell and move, yeah, you may take a loss. But if this is some sort of long-term housing arrangement for you, you're going to be fine. Yes. But I mean, that was kind of the primary argument prior to the housing crisis that everybody's like, well, housing just goes up. And it's like, why? I'm like, well, just because it goes up. But it went up, it it's up again now. Though. Like there was a housing yeah. crisis and I know that was shitty. Obviously, I'm not trying to like. There's some work. areas, though, that, you know, were just. Uh, but chances are Denver's a, a place you want to be. So it's never yeah, Denver. Be- Denver's like, yeah, Denver has. Yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't compare Denver to like North Florida. Exactly. So yes. Yes. Right. Uh, so I don't know. I think, you know, it depends on how long you want to be there, but I, I don't think investing in that has ever really has ever really historically been in america a bad decision actually saruti it's a great point and it shows your real estate background and the access that you have to that kind of stuff because you're right if you're going to be there like how long are you gonna be there you want to live there for 10 years all right well now that's now we're talking about something different um and i should have brought that up but i'm i'm more short term all the time now and uh you know most people are normal and moving into a house and hoping to live there 10 plus years and raise a family and maybe they live in the house for 20 years you know i don't know uh i'm just saying the entry point into it right now doesn't feel great um and when everybody keeps doing this shit where it's like well you got to buy now because the prices are going to keep going up and you're like well that's not like we we just did it 13 years ago where that's why everybody started buying like crazy again Another reason was everybody was freaked out about how the prices kept going up and they were all told over and over again, like, oh, the price is just going to keep going up. They're going to keep going up. Um, There's some really alarming trends on home prices that are way beyond what we went through before. Um, And I don't have the answers to it, so I'm not going to pretend to. I'm just telling you there are numbers that that should scare the shit out of you. And um, I don't know. But everybody back then was like, oh, don't worry about it. Doesn't mean anything. Always goes up. Tell me this is a stupid thought process, though, but this is what I always thought. If if there's ever a situation in this country where the housing, where like house, houses or the properties, you know, is worth nothing or it just completely crashes, we probably have bigger problems in this country than just the housing market, correct? Like there's probably something fundamentally wrong with the country. So as long as like America is what it is, I kind of always feel like at some point over a 20 year period, whatever you invest in in real estate wise is probably going to hold this value or go up. Yeah, I, I think it also... 
is like different. I think we grew up with generations prior to us where the idea was you save, you get the down payment, you do yeah. the 30 year, you pay it off, and then that's your retirement. Boom. There you go. Um, we're more transactional. Uh, there are different products all over the place. I mean, we can get to something else, but I mean, this is now a bigger picture economic thing where there's all sorts of stuff I can read that I'll be like, oh, that's scary. That doesn't seem cool. Like, how come we can just keep doing stimulus over and over and over again? Like, we're just fine. And then you'll read something else and be like, yeah, we're fine. And you're like, I don't know. I don't know. what I just, I simply present it as being aware of both sides of the argument, but I just, there's certain, there's certain markets with housing where they're so beyond the crisis numbers on pricing that I don't think it's ridiculous to ask like, hey, so this is just going to be cool this time Something around. Out. Like yeah. we're just, we're just cool. Like there's no, I mean, there will be a correction. I don't know that it would be what we went through, but I don't know how you couldn't go through 2008, 2009 and be a little spooked by stuff. And that's, that's all I'm saying. That's so, fair. Yeah. All right, Kyle, you want to jump in on that one? Probably not, huh? Mm, yeah, I mean, not really. I don't have much to say about that other than I'd like to start buying a house in the next three to four years and you shot me right through the heart with your credit card statement. But um, that's it. <laughs> yeah, we'll pay that shit off. Don't do the minimum payment. Ouch. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, now I feel like I actually bummed Kyle out too much. And for that, I apologize. Uh, I don't even now. Now it's just awkward. I don't know what to do now. All right, Kyle. Yeah, me neither. I don't know what to do either. How do you think I feel? I'm kidding. I'm yep. selling my stocks to pay my credit cards. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, all right, there you go. A little financial advice from, from Kyle as, as well on the way out. And uh, thanks to Saruti. And be sure to check out the Ryan Russillo podcast and subscribe part of Spotify and The Ringer.